Blog Talk Radio. child abuse domestic violence cases almost 30 years ago. I started handling sexual assault in the early 1990s. And I spent 10 years as a prosecutor really focused on these crimes and then became the elected city attorney of San Diego and was honored to spend eight years in office as the elected city attorney. And during that time, we opened the San Diego Family Justice Center, which was the first time anywhere in America we brought together 25 agencies under one roof to work with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse and elder abuse and human trafficking. And since 2004, after I left office, I've been leading Alliance for Hope International, which is a national nonprofit that really works on how to bring together agencies to do multi-agency work and collaborative work to reduce violence and abuse, both in the family violence context, in the sexual assault context, and in the human trafficking world. So very honored to be with you today, Heather, and thanks for having the program on this topic today because I think it's so timely. Well, thank you, and thank you for joining us. Also with us today is Ebony Tucker. Ebony, welcome. Hi, Heather. Thank you. Ebony is the Advocacy Director for the National Alliance to End Sexual Violence. Um, she has been Director of the Louisiana Foundation Against Sexual Assault, helping to develop anti-sexual assault initiatives, and as the Executive Director at Legal Assistance for Victims, uh, Project Director at the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence. You just have an extensive background working with sexual assault. What have I missed in your resume, Ebony? Um, I think you've uh, you pretty much got me covered. Um, I also did uh, work for the state of Florida um, looking at sexual assault in uh, workplace issues mainly um, and working on um, sexual harassment and rape in the workplace. Uh, oh, that's wonderful, rape in the workplace. That's a whole mm-hmm. separate show, isn't it? That well, is, definitely. We, yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, the... Um, topic that we're on today is, of course, talking about the Brock Turner case. Um, And I use his name uh, instead of the victim's name because he's the one that seems to be the focus of so much attention uh, in the last couple of weeks. Brock Turner, uh, in case you've been living on Mars and had no internet connection there, Brock Turner uh, was uh, found guilty of... um, of raping an unconscious woman uh, in Stanford, or near Stanford, and um, he was given a particularly light sentence. Um, media t- wrong, um, both in empathy for him and in empathy for the victim. The victim was particularly articulate, and she presented a letter to the courts um, that was very moving, and uh, that you know, certainly drew media attention. But there was also a letter from Brock's father to the courts, and that also brought a good deal of media attention. Before we get into that letter, Ebony, why so much attention for this particular case? Because 
this is not an unusual case, is it? I mean, this isn't the first and only case of rape we've had this year in this country. Why so much attention to this, in your opinion? Um, well, I think the the, the story really um, brought people in as well as the timing. You know, I think that, um, and my colleagues and I talk about it often, that sexual assault is something that's discussed so much more openly now. Um, there's so much more support um, from a large amount of the public for survivors, much more than we've seen um, at any other time of, of doing this work. And I think seeing something so egregious at this point um, where we're really poised to be ready to talk about this, as well as the fact that um, you have this, you know, really open and, and passionate letter from the survivor really describing her experience extremely eloquently. Um, and I think that all of those things sort of came together um, as well as, you know, a more accepted, I think, general public outrage for um, the privilege of offenders and um, the idea that, you know, an offender's life has been affected more than the survivor's has. And I think that that really is struck home with people. Well, and that kind of brings us directly into that whole letter. Casey, this letter, it's certainly not unusual for um, family and friends of someone who is charged with a crime to uh, communicate with the court in support of this person uh, before sentencing. That's, that's not unusual, is it? No, that's certainly not unusual, and people can certainly appreciate kind of objectively that, you know, a mother would beg for mercy for her son or a father would beg for mercy for his son in any kind of criminal case. I think that's definitely true. I think what has captured people so much about Dan Tucker's letter, however, is, one, the total, complete uh, ignoring of the victim in his advocacy on behalf of his son, the total complete minimization of what his son did, and even the refusal to even acknowledge what his son did, and really the way that in that ignorance he demeaned the victim and objectified the victim even more uh, than uh, she already had been in the process of having to go through this case. And so in the, in the context of all that, you begin to see all these other layers of this that relates to gender-based violence in America. You see white male privilege. You see elitism. You see this entire kind of sense of uh, athlete uh, privilege. There's just so many layers of this that play themselves out in Dan Tucker's letter, not the least of which is what is the responsibility of a father to educate particularly his sons about how to treat women and girls and how to view women and girls. Uh, and I think glaringly in Dan Tucker's letter is abject failure of a father to really impart the kinds of values that will prevent uh, a son or at least dramatically reduce the chances of a son later assaulting a woman in life. I'm going to read a couple of sections from this letter for our listeners, but first we do have a caller, and uh, I want to go to that caller and uh, see what they have to contribute. Are you there, caller? Well, I guess we lost a caller. Uh, that was from the 206 area code, so that's a Seattle person. So um, if you would like to call back, we're here for you. Meanwhile, if you would like to call in, please give us a, a telephone. Put it, give us your two cents worth. Maybe you have a different perspective than we have. The number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. We also have the chat room open. If you don't want to talk on the phone, if you want to uh, make a comment, uh, we're, we're happy to have you do that, and I can share it with our audience. Meanwhile, this letter, um, and, and I have to say, you know, as, as a parent, if my son were facing something like this, I would do whatever I could to try and, and provide for leniency. Um, if I truly didn't believe that my son did this, I would absolutely uh, go to bat for him, and I would absolutely try to advocate to the best of my ability. If, however... I understood that my son did, in fact, do this. I think I'd be writing a completely different kind of letter to the judge. 
The first paragraph of um, Dan Turner's letter states, I am writing this letter to you. He's writing it to the judge. To tell you about my son Brock and the person that I know he is. First of all, let me say that Brock is absolutely devastated by the events of January 17th and 18th, 2015. He would do anything to turn back the hands of time and have that night to do over again. In many one-on-one conversations with Brock since that day, I can tell you that he is truly sorry for what occurred that night and for all the pain and suffering that it has caused for all of those involved and impacted by that night. He has expressed true remorse for his actions on that night. Living under the same roof of Brock since his incident, I can tell you firsthand the devastating impact that it has had on my son. Before I elaborate more, I would like to share some memories of my son that demonstrate the quality of his character. Well, you know, Casey, I was with him up until that last couple of sentences. (laughs) I am sure that this has had a terrible impact on this boy's life. We can't doubt that. We can't doubt that a father wants to appeal for leniency for his son. We can't doubt that any parent would try to bring out the best side of his child that he can when that child is facing some sort of really hugely significant legal consequences. But we're going to be talking about the quality of his character. I think we've already he's already demonstrated the quality of his character. Am I being overly critical here? I mean, is this just a typical letter to a court? I mean, right away my alarm bells are going when I get to that last sentence, Casey. Absolutely. And I think once Dan Turner kind of went down that road of advocating on behalf of his son for the impacts that his son was experiencing, what Brock Turner is struggling with after raping a woman, which Dan Turner never acknowledges in his letter, once he starts going down that road and say how he doesn't like to cook ribeye steaks anymore, he doesn't like to have pretzels or his favorite snacks anymore, I mean, it's downright traumatic. He's suffering yeah. from depression now that he's raped a woman. He's suffering from the realization that he will never be an Olympic swimmer, that he will never be enrolled at Stanford again. As soon as he goes down that road, this latent kind of ignoring of the victim and this latent kind of of demeaning of the victim and the impact on the victim is just dripping out of that letter. And I think that's what the American public has responded to, particularly in the face of the victim's unbelievable eloquence in articulating what has happened to her and what this has meant to her. So you've got this incredible juxtaposition of an, a courageous woman stepping up and, and by being anonymous, I really believe she has become this symbol for all sexual assault for survivors. Had she identified herself in the process, she might not have become that symbol for all survivors, but I think she has. So she's representing all survivors while Dan Turner somehow begins to represent, quite frankly, a lot of rapists because of the way he's advocating on behalf of his son. I completely well, agree. What he tried to do is what happens so often, either in domestic violence or, or sexual assault. The perpetrator portrayed as the real victim here. And I think he's done um, everything possible in the letter to really – Um, as Casey pointed out earlier, to not even acknowledge that a sexual assault has actually happened. Um, His language is really vague about his actions of that night. Um, And even later on in the letter, I know he um, talks about wanting to have um, Brock go back to schools and discuss the dangers of alcohol consumption and sexual promiscuity. Yeah, Yeah, I saw that too. It's like, let's blame the drink. Let's blame the alcohol. Exactly. Let's all be clear that Brock Turner should never be a spokesperson on this topic. He will be a symbol. <laughs> he will be a symbol, yeah. but he should never be a spokesperson on it on any topics related to this. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and of course his father was advocating for probation for this um, rather than any kind of prison time. Um, he apparently advocated well, I mean, uh, or at least well from an outsider's standpoint, because Brock Turner did get a, a fairly lenient sentence, did he not? Casey, what was his, his sentence, do you recall? Well, six months in the county jail is about as minimal a sentence as you could possibly imagine for a rape case 
a violent yeah. rape case with three felony convictions in that rape case with a presumed minimum sentence of two years in state prison. That was the presumptive sentence in the case that Judge Persky ignored. So you're talking about an unbelievable life sentence. He will not yeah. go to prison. He will be out of jail probably before Labor Day of this year. Well, Casey, you think it's light, but he'll never be able to cook a ribeye again, okay? Well, and he will face other profound consequences. That's true. I mean, he will be a registered sex offender for life. He will yeah. have to deal with this consequence for the rest of his life. So I think in that way, it is important that the public know that he's not just, he did avoid the sentence that I believe he deserved, but at mm-hmm. least he is going to live with this as the victim will for the rest of her life. Yes. Exactly. There you go. And so while he's, people are, are bemoaning the consequences of 20, his, you know, his father, what his father referred to as 20 minutes action, um, the, that 20 minutes action um, is the impact for the victim will never go away, ever. She may learn to live with it. She may learn to incorporate it into her life, but it will never go away. Why should it be allowed to go away for Brock Turner? And so from the standpoint of prison term, it is probably not, um, you know, uh, um, just. It's not what people would expect. But from the standpoint of lifelong consequences, this publicity over this young man, the publicity over his father's letter, that is going to be there forever, and that will follow him forever. One of the things that's really unusual about this, and I'm having read the letter and, and you know, I mean, the, the, the phrase, I'm being really judgmental here, and I'm trying not to be, but reading the father's letter, I thought, well, no wonder this boy didn't see anything wrong with, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, it, 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 I'm trying to dance around something here. Help me out. Ebony, do you know what I'm trying I to do. get at here? And and I'm I'm going to take a stab at it, um, but I think that what it seems like um, you're saying is that it, it, he seems to have been raised with a lack of understanding, um, not just around this issue, but for the consequences of actually hurting someone and what that means. Um, Thank you. And so yeah, and so I I and so I completely understand that. I mean I think it's not not at all lost on me that he probably does not understand the consequences of what he's done considering the position that his father's taken here. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, you know and as I said, you know, the the first thought that came to my mind was the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, mm-hmm. here is a father who doesn't equate who equates the inability to eat his favorite foods with the consequences for a victim of rape. Um, there, there seems to be a real disconnect there, uh, in my view. And if that was in, indeed the environment in which this young man was raised, it's not surprising to me that he would do something as egregious as what he did. We have a, a caller, Casey and Ebony. I'm going to try one more time, see if we can connect with our caller. Caller, are you there? Whoa, caller, I, I'm hearing... Okay, um, you're going to have to either try the chat room or try a different phone because all we're getting is some sort of mechanical um, blurb there. So try a different phone, and we do want to hear from you, but the mechanical uh, voice thing isn't coming through. Okay, so we um, have an unusual situation here. Uh, with this particular case, not just because of the letters, not just because of the publicity, and not just because of the, the sentence, sentencing for Brock Turner. It's also unusual because the victim was unconscious. She was unconscious because she was so drunk. I don't think I have ever seen a rape case where that hasn't been a deal breaker for any kind of prosecution or significant sentencing. Is that an overgeneralization, Ebony? Um, I think it is and it isn't. Um, and so, and, and Casey probably, um, or, you know, may have some information on this as well, but from what I've seen, it really depends on not just the prosecutor, but the area in which you're working. Um, and, 
how, and this is probably not the, the best or most appropriate way to say it, but I think a lot of prosecutors feel as if they need to be able to create empathy for the survivor in order to get the conviction. Um, that because sometimes we already have these victim-blaming notions um, coming into cases that, you know, the the issues around intoxication and sexual assault really have to be discussed and explained well to a jury. Uh, and I think that prosecutors who do feel comfortable in that situation do actually prosecute these cases. But I think that there are still quite a few who don't. Um, and we see that those cases are declined for prosecution much more often than if um, alcohol or drugs were not a part of the assault. Casey, do you want yeah, I certainly agree with Ebony about that. It's very difficult for prosecutors to prosecute cases where you've got voluntary intoxication on the part of both a victim and an offender to sort out what happened. This case was likely prosecuted because of the bystander intervention. It was prosecuted because these two Swedish students on bicycles saw him and ended up chasing him and tackling him when he tried to run away. I think in the absence of those witnesses, um, Brock, Turner would have, Brock Turner would have gotten away with it. He would have committed the assault. He probably would have completed the assault. I'm not at all sure that the assault wouldn't have gone on much longer. Um, if those students had not arrived and seen it from a distance and yelled at him and then come over because he was in the process of raping her when they found him. So I, I do think that that is an important piece of this. But I like the fact that this issue has, is getting discussed because alcohol doesn't cause sexual assault. And I'm a Stanford grad. Um, I had too much to drink at times when I went to Stanford University. And it would have never crossed my mind to rape a woman who was unconscious just because I was drinking. Um, there, there is more going on here with Brock Turner than just that he'd had something to drink or that the victim was unconscious because she'd had too much to drink. I think what fascinates the American public is we think we know what rapists look like. The public has such a bias. You know, there are these nasty, strange men in the middle of nowhere that sneak up on women or they're total strangers that somehow come into a woman's home or kidnap a woman. And here's this all-American, white, upper-middle-class Stanford student who a lot of people in the American public, including those that kind of tend toward a racist approach to this, to think this is mostly about men of color, um, see this white guy and say, how could this possibly be uh, that he's a rapist? And yet, mm -hmm. there you have it. And the reality is that there are lots of Brock Turners out there, and they usually get away with it. They don't get caught. Right. I read one study, and I didn't I, – I should have brought you the citation, but I didn't. But I read one study of college men, and something like 30% of them admitted to having imposed themselves sexually on a, on a college woman. 30%. Once. They did it once. It was not a routine. There was a certain percentage of them, a very tiny percentage of them, that admitted to having done this on a, on a, a regular basis, you know, on, on a more than one occasion. But the fact that there was such a high percentage of these nice, regular college boys who admitted that on at least one occasion they imposed themselves sexually on a woman, um, well, it was astounding to me. This happens a lot. Yeah, and, and usually, I think go ahead. Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say that I think it speaks exactly to to Casey's point that we don't have a visual for what a rapist looks like, um, and this idea that um, you know we have a lot of college students and college age men, um, not just men who are actually in college, um, but ones who have equated um, the intoxication of a woman as a means to force sexual activity. Um, and I think that this Brock Turner case, as well as the stat that you just gave, um, and I've seen that as well too, is really giving us the opportunity to look at this situation and say, what is it that we're teaching young men about women? What is it that we're teaching them is appropriate conduct with young women? Um, because it's coming from somewhere. And I think that 
it's really much more widespread than it is that than it than we've acknowledged previously. Yeah. What is it about us that then wants to make the rapist a sympathetic character? Um, and I guess we should generalize. It's not just the rape. We're talking about rapists today. But I've seen this also with domestic violence. I've seen it with all sorts of of uh, uh, people who have done something wrong, uh, broken the law or inappropriate behavior, whatever. Something happens with us as observers, and our mind kind of switches under certain circumstances to kind of make the perpetrator the victim. Look what's happening to this poor boy um, just because of this one incident. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we saw that with the, um, uh, I, I want to say East Liverpool, Ohio. That wasn't East Liverpool. Uh, Casey, the case with the football players in the small Ohio town. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. Steubenville. Yeah, Steubenville. Um, you know, I mean, oh, my gosh, you know, this whole town. And I grew up not too far from Steubenville. Uh, you know, rural town, it's not a, not a huge town. And the whole town is outraged that this girl would be doing this to these boys, ruining their futures, doing this, you know. We have a tendency, a lot of us, to make the perpetrator the victim when the perpetrator meets our criteria for, for I don't know, empathy, sympathy. I don't know. Well, what, what is that? Certainly, I mean, yeah, well, certainly both, you know, men and women can be victims of sexual assault. It's not just women who are victims of sexual assault. But I will say that I think the large majority of assault is con- perpetrated by men against women. And I think if you ignore the reality of misogyny in the culture and the reality of thousands of years of male patriarchy and male privilege and the subjugation of women, that you're missing the context of all of this. It's why many of us, uh, and I hope a growing number of men, are trying to support our sisters and the advocates leading the movement like Ebony in the sexual assault arena to say we feel a responsibility as men to come alongside uh, the leaders of the sexual assault movement and support them and stand up for what Uh, masculinity should look like and condemn uh, toxic masculinity, condemn violent masculinity, condemn these kind of concepts of what it means to be a man that somehow put a man in a power and control position over women and girls. But I think that the rape culture, which as it's been referred to in this country, is perpetuate an environment that allows rape to be so prevalent and allows rape to be so normalized and excused, I think it connects to men and to the way uh, men interact with women and the way men have controlled the culture for quite literally thousands of years in most of the world. And I agree. I think it takes um, also a great amount of self-reflection, too, for some people to recognize um, those biases and that misogyny in themselves. And I think that's where we're getting um, a lot of the perpetuation of the rape culture. So, uh, no, you may not be a man who has ever raped anyone um, or never would, but when you hear about a rape case in the media – your bias tends to lean a certain way. You tend to think, well, maybe there, is, maybe there was a misunderstanding, which is something that I think we hear a lot, um, particularly from um, in cases of campus sexual assaults and um, younger adults, um, as if there was some sort of misunderstanding about whether or not rape occurred. And I think that, that there's a very underlying um, misogyny there and gender discrimination that people don't really examine within themselves. And usually when you bring it up, the response is, well, no, I mean, it has nothing to do with that. But it it usually almost always, I mean, it almost always does. Well, and Heather, I agree with Ebony on all of that. It also connects to the racial disparities and the racism latent in all this. The New York Daily News did a story this last week of the contrast between Corey Beatty, who was the Vanderbilt football player, who was also 19 years old, African-American, who was convicted for sexual assault of an unconscious woman. And he got 15 to 25 years in prison compared to white Brock Turner, Stanford swimmer, age 19, who raped an unconscious woman who got three months in the county jail. 
And that that reality is can't be ignored in this case either because there are there unbelievable a, disparities in the culture around race mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Is there a difference, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about differences between in sentencing uh, depending on the race of the perpetrator. Is there a difference in sentencing depending on the race of the victim? Not that I know of, um, or not that I've been made aware of, but I, I think that has to do, and and I think it definitely happens in some cases. I'm not saying that, but as far as actual statistics, I think those are things that are just a little bit more difficult for us to get. So I haven't seen that. Um, okay. And I think people usually track the activity around the um, the race of the offender more often. Okay. Um, and, what, Ebony, we talked a little bit off air. On, uh, you know, when – when I decided to do this show, I, you know, I saw the publicity, and we we see this periodically. You know, we saw it for Steubenville, we saw it for this, we saw it every now and then. One of these cases um, becomes national news. Everybody gets in a swivet over it, and then we forget it, and we kind of uh, wipe our hands, like, okay, poof, to discuss that one. Now let's move on to real life. When in fact, this happens every day somewhere. There is a rapist that is given a light little hand slap routinely in this country. But we don't always hear about it unless it's the Brock Turners or the Steubenville Five or whatever they mm-hmm. were. Um, when people talk about these kinds of things, I always say, you know, I got a speeding ticket once. I got a speeding ticket about five years ago. Did I speed once? <laughs> How many times exactly. do you think I went over the speed limit? in my car over the last five years. I got one ticket. Do you really think these are isolated incidents? Do you really think that this only happens once here and once there? And yet I think people do have that impression. How often does this happen without the big publicity, without the big outcry from the public? Um, I mean, often, I think. And so I think looking at it um, or looking at a, a couple of different issues, I think for for one, I think a lot of offenders, and I know that there is um, data somewhere, and I, I can't recall the actual numbers, but um, the idea that you will rape many times before you are actually caught, um, before there's actually an arrest. Um, and I think that it starts for a lot of offenders from a, an age that's much younger than 19 or 20. Um, so I do not know Brock Turner or, you know, uh, anything about his past, so I, I won't speak about him specifically, but I think the likelihood that the first time that you've committed a sexual assault is the one where you've ever been arrested is it's extremely unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of rapists repeat this pattern um, and, carry on this activity for quite a while before they're even brought into a situation like this, which is extremely frustrating because um, knowing for how long you can get away with this behavior before it's even addressed publicly or before you're ever even called or before it's ever even called into question is something that for survivors and advocates and, you know, a lot of other uh, people doing this work is extremely frustrating. Um, especially because sexual assault, more than a lot of other crimes, um, is prosecuted less often, is there are fewer arrests. Um, the likelihood that someone will be, you know, quote-unquote, brought to justice is much lower in these cases. Casey, um, did you, have you seen this in your career? Um, how, how often does this happen? How, how unique is this situation with Brock Turner? Well, both with the work that Ebony does and the National Sexual Assault Organizations and Scott Berkowitz and RAIN, which is an organization that we interact with quite a bit, you know, the estimates are that the sexual assaults happening in America about every 100 seconds, depending on the study you read during this hour-long show, you'll have about 30 sexual assaults that will have occurred in the United States then based on those kinds of numbers. So, if you've got 30 an hour going on, uh, this is a very prevalent thing. The majority of those probably are not reported to law enforcement. When you see what happens to a sexual assault victim when they do come forward and when they do uh, reveal their identity and go through the process 
and what the culture does to them and what the criminal justice system does to them, it shouldn't be a great surprise that many do not want to report and do not want to go forward. And because of that, it shouldn't be any great surprise that, you know, Rain will tell you that out of 100 arrests for sexual assault, uh, less than three of them will ever spend a day in prison. I mean, that's a pretty stunning number um, of how few actually end up going to prison for their offenses. So I I think it's incredibly prevalent. I do want to say, though, that I don't think that most men rape women. I think the number of men that rape rape Mm -hmm. women is actually quite small in the United States. Um, And when men do become rapists, whether they start that behavior as uh, teenagers or as young adults, when they become rapists, they are, I think, in many cases more likely to rape multiple women Dr. David Lezak, who's one of the experts in the country, we just did a conference in New Orleans a few months ago, a sexual assault conference, and he presented his study on serial rapists where 37 men that he studied admitted to 433 rapes against an average of 11 victims per rapist. So this notion of men uh, raping many women uh, I think is a reality The big challenge we have in our culture is that because most men don't rape women, they don't think it's their responsibility to stop the men who do rape women. And they don't see it as their responsibility to address rape culture or the misogyny of other men that hate women and that try to control women because they don't. That's not not what they do. So they don't see it as their responsibility. So I think this whole effort, whether you look at the Green Dot campaign or other efforts around bystander intervention, I think is a really important one. And I think there should be more attention paid to those Swedish students. I think there should be more attention paid to what Stanford University was doing to get bystanders into frat parties to protect women and make sure that sexual assault is not even a possibility during a party where people are drinking because there are, there are third parties there looking and making sure, holding other men accountable for how they treat people in that party setting. And that's happening at a place like Harvard University right now. It, it wasn't happening at Stanford. Stanford doesn't have that level of awareness on the campus. They haven't done the kind of work that other universities are doing. And they're paying the consequences for it now that this case is really becoming nationally branded as the Stanford rape case, because in many ways, Stanford is somewhat responsible for their failure to address this issue really openly on the campus and with students throughout all of their programs. But what about the the responsibility of the parent? Um, there's a limit to how much we can influence our children, but we do influence them. And, and when we send them off on their way to university, uh, you know, our, I guess every parent tells their kid, don't, don't drink too much, da-da-da-da. But there's a way of telling and there's another way of telling. I mean, one of the things that I, oh, um, maybe I have a, a, a perverted approach, but when um, when I became aware of some interest in drugs, we hung out in an emergency room on a, on a Saturday night of a, of a rock concert so that my kids could observe the consequences of drug use under those circumstances. I felt an obligation to inform my children of the consequences of their actions. And I advised both of my children, male and female, that if you over-drink, you will lose control of yourself and do things that will have lifelong, lifelong con- or potentially lifelong consequences. And I drilled that into them. Now, of course, as a parent, you can't hold their hands forever. But isn't a certain amount of this an educational process? Uh, what obligation does a parent have to educate their child about appropriate behavior and avoiding ac- uh, uh, anything that will enable them to make um, uh, Oh, help me out here. I'm struggling with this. Yeah. Uh, but do you, you know what well, I'm saying, Ebony? I see what I you're mean, saying. I do. I do. And, I mean, we tell know, kids to think... look both ways across, before they cross the street. If they get hit by a car, it's the driver's fault, of course. But we arm them by saying you have to look both ways. Don't be silly here. Yeah, but I think that, um, and I think you're completely right. Parents do have a huge obligation. And I think for a long time, we haven't necessarily been telling giving our kids the best messages 
Um, I think that we have a culture of raising boys to take advantage of women. Um, And I think that we raise girls to protect themselves against that. But as a woman, if you are, or if it's possible that you may be sexually assaulted, you can't prevent a sexual assault. You can do things that might reduce your risk, sure, Sure. uh, but you can't prevent a sexual assault. And I think that we, not that we can prevent all sexual assaults, obviously, but I think that we are in a unique space now where people are more open to talk about what should I be sharing with my children. And I think if you ask most parents, they've told their girls, put your hand over your drink, watch who you talk to, make sure you always have a buddy, but they've never said to their sons, how how do you interact with girls that are intoxicated? Um, do really? you make sure you that if think, you see something, I had that conversation that with my something. son. I, mean, I don't I, think I, a lot I, of people do. Yeah. Really? I, I huh, do. Okay. I think that Casey, people that see prevention. Well? Yeah, I agree with Ebony. I don't think most parents do that, and I do think that it is our responsibility. You know, it's interesting. My wife and I raised three children. We're grandparents now. I've We've got two daughters and a son. And um, as my son graduated from college, he played water polo at Cal Baptist University in Southern California. I had a conversation with him at the restaurant where we were kind of celebrating his graduation. And I said, Chris, tell me the, the other men in your life besides me that messaged you about how to respect women and girls and how to treat women and girls and how to interact with them in all settings of your life, whether it's in an intimate relationship or in a public setting or a private setting. Who else besides me? And he kind of sat there for a while, and then he said, Dad, I can't think of anybody else. And I said, well, Chris, what about your water polo coaches? What about your baseball coaches, your basketball coaches, your teachers in high school, your youth minister? Certainly there must have been other men in your life that were messaging you as you were growing up about how to treat women and girls. And he thought about it, and he said, no, Dad, it was pretty much just you. So oh, if I'm that's shocked. true, if that's true, um, I mean, I know there's a lot of work going on around this. You know, Futures Without Violence is developing their Coaching Boys to Men program. We've got a lot of work we're doing with Camp mm-hmm. Hope America and our program with trauma-exposed kids. But the reality is that in the main, across the United States of America and around the world, I don't think that messaging is coming from many different places to young men, not in the misogynistic culture that we live in, not in the uh, a patriarchal male privilege oriented culture that we live in. I don't think that messaging is happening. And if you took me out of my son's life, my son would have been right there with the Brock Turners of the world without that kind of male role model in his life um, who said that's not how we treat women and girls. And then I had to show him by how I treated his mother too. Yes. in that process so that he grew up learning something different than what, quite frankly, quite a few of his kind of friends uh, did not have in their homes growing up. Wow. Well, don't you think, and, and this is a little off the point, but I think we have to teach empathy. I don't think each of us is born with empathy. I think we have an obligation to teach empathy to our children. And I think that, you know, as they're, as we're bringing them up, uh, you know, they see somebody slip on the banana peel and they laugh. And you go, yeah, that kind of looks funny, but how do you think that felt, you know, to be there and falling on the sidewalk and blah, blah, blah. You know, to, to, to teach children to put themselves in the other person's place. And I see some of that empathy instruction happening with girls. I don't see it happening with boys a lot. Do you think that might be a component, Ebony? Do you think that might have something to do with how we teach our boys to interact with women? I think so completely, and I think that it comes back to um, some of the points we talked about earlier, and I know definitely what um, Casey just said as well, is that a part of teaching empathy really is seeing the other person as your equal. Um, And I think that even though we might not be saying to boys specifically, you are better than girls, um, you shouldn't consider them or you should consider them, you know, as an equal. Like we're not having that direct conversation either way. I think that they're picking up on the messages that when they show respect and deference or um, even just kindness in a lot of ways, that they're showing it towards other men. Um, they, 
and you see this in a lot of these cases, like a Brock Turner case, where they don't seem to associate a sense of empathy with women as well. And he may not associate it with anyone. Um, But I think that seeing women as having the same feelings that you would as um, protecting them or protecting their, you know, sense of identity or making them feel safe or not being threatening in that way is not something that can generally occur without being taught. And so I think along with empathy, those conversations about gender still have to happen. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. We have. I'm going to try our caller one more time. We have the same caller. I can see their number, so hopefully they've got a better connection now. Caller, are you there? Caller? Nope. I'm so sorry. We're just not getting you through, uh, and I don't think it's at this end. So um, I apologize to our caller. Sorry we didn't get you. Try going to the chat room, and I can perhaps uh, read your question before we're we're done. Um, there are a couple of questions in the chat room. One of them is, what's going to happen to Turner? Well, I think we kind of covered that, didn't we? He's going to have to register as a sex offender. Maybe they mean in a more esoteric way. What, do you think he's learned his lesson? Do you think he, what, what do you think is going to happen to him from this point onward, aside from the particular penalties that he has to face? Well, I can only hope um, that he has and that You know, one thing I'll say from reading um, the survivor's letter in this case um, was how much she acknowledged her own her suffering along with his, um, which seems to be missing maybe from him or not just his family, but maybe from him as well. So I think or I hope at least that he understands that and isn't just looking for at this through the lens of how it's affected his life. but also the lives that he's changed, particularly hers. So mm-hmm. I, my, my hope is, is that, and I say that again, is because of the public outrage in this, that maybe if he hadn't learned that before, that it's being made apparent to him now. Um, hmm. and, and that's the best I can say for him, I think, as far as what I think might come well, out Well, with just it. a slap on the hands, well, I guess it's not just a slap on the hands, Casey. You pointed out that, it, it, okay, we're, we're talking a slap on the hand when it comes to actual jail time, but he's going to have the full complement of consequences that any convicted rapist would have, um, and that will affect him for the rest of his life. He's already been booted off that swim team. He, I think he had uh, Olympic aspirations, and that's gone now. So there are consequences, um, and now I guess it's just up to... Uh, society and his family and himself to decide whether he's going to do that and and move into some constructive outcome of this whole thing for his life. Do you have any insight into that at all, Casey? I guess, yeah, I guess I'm less interested in uh, Brock Turner at this point uh, than I am in the bigger conversation about how this case can be an opportunity for greater social change and greater social justice and really moving the dial. Um, I was quite captivated by uh, Joe Biden's open letter, the vice president's open letter to the victim in this case. And in that letter, I actually wrote down something just in my handwritten notes when I listened to Biden. It said, if everyone who shared your letter on social media or who had a private conversation in their own homes with their daughters and sons draws upon the passion, the outrage, and the commitment they feel right now, the next time there is a choice between intervening and walking away, then I believe you will have helped change the world for the better. And I really do think that this kind of furious anger that the vice president talked about in his own heart uh, is something that can be a motivator to us. You know, right now we're signing up uh, counselors and mentors for our summer Camp Hope America program. And if you want to know how to prevent the next generation of rapists in America, you got to love kids growing up in domestic violence and child abuse homes. you got to love kids impacted by trauma. Because I don't know Brock Turner's family story, but I do know that the vast majority of those who end up abusing women in life grew up in homes with violence and abuse. The vast majority of the research is irrefutable. So our passion in Camp Hope America, of course, is to love the kids. It's to get to the kids and help young girls realize how much they're worth and what they deserve and help boys process through their rage issues. Um, And girls, too, with their rage issues, with abuse they may have experienced in their homes growing up. And I'm having a 
very difficult time getting mentors. Uh, people are too busy. They don't want to spend two hours a month to prevent the next generation of rapists or domestic violence offenders. Um, it's just oh too gosh. much. You know, there's too many good TV shows. And, and I'm, yeah. I have friends, good friends, saying, you know what, I just don't have two hours, you know, a Saturday a month. And then they'll go all over social media and spend two hours raging about Brock Turner. So yes. for me, I feel like we have to use this and we have to challenge people to use this to do something. Uh, to actually do something to help change the way the college campus and their communities addressing this issue, the way their church is dealing with this issue or their mosque or their synagogue, the way people are dealing with this in the school setting. I feel like my challenge to people is let's do something about it now. Don't just get mad and spend two hours on social media raging about it because that does really nothing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and, and Go ahead, Ebony. Sorry, yeah, just to follow up, I do want to say one other thing that I really, really hope uh, comes out of this as a change is also, um, you know, when it comes to judges and judicial reform. Um, I think that, you know, you have in this case where a jury really came through, did their job, um, gave a guilty gave a guilty verdict um, after looking at the evidence, considering um, all of those things that I think we think might bias juries. Um, really came across, came through with a responsible verdict, and we see the biases of judges um, giving a lot of leniency. And this isn't the first time this has happened. I know we've brought this up before, but so much of what happens in the criminal justice system really does have a direct impact on the amount of survivors we see report. Um, and, and I think that really looking at the way judges respond to these cases and also forcing judges to say, am I bringing my biases in? Am I doing justice every time? Are my decisions about sentencing changing depending on the color of the perpetrator or the offender? Um, I think that, or the privilege of the offender. And so I do hope that in some of the work that we're doing and really trying to make change here, that that is a part of it because criminal justice reform, especially with judges, is huge. Yes. Well, and I think that, you know, the, the judges um, – I've met some wonderful, marvelous judges, and I'm privileged to live up in a part of the country that has some really um, uh, great education and uh, policies when it comes to domestic violence, sexual assault, that kind of thing. But I have seen so many cases where judges are so not with the program on so many of these things. They just don't get it. I, I'm thinking of you know, cases in Michigan where the, the children refuse to see the father who's, uh, who's been abusive, and so she sends them to a child detention facility until they agree to go to see their father. I mean, there are so many egregious mm -hmm. decisions made by judges in these kinds of cases that you just have to wonder what on earth we can do to, uh, you know, break into that system and educate those folks. Casey, you probably have a lot more insight than I do into those issues uh, with the court. Oh, yeah. What's likely to happen with this judge? They are, there's a huge recall effort in place. Is that likely to happen? Well, I, I think that it's actually very likely that Aaron Persky will be recalled. Uh, in a lot of places, judges are appointed and they're almost immune uh, from a recall or some kind of removal from office. In California, judges can be recalled. And even though Aaron Persky just ran unopposed for re-election, uh, Stanford law professor Michelle Dauber and Joe Trippi used to work for Governor Jerry Brown and others in the Silicon Valley are organizing a formal recall campaign. The website is recallaaronpersky.com, and they are gathering signatures. They only need 58,000 signatures to compel a recall election where Aaron Persky will go on the ballot and other attorneys or others in the legal community can run against him and the public can decide. And I just supported that campaign very thoughtfully. I, I don't take lightly the importance of judicial independence. I don't think that recalling Aaron Persky is some end-all or be-all to anything. Uh, but the reality is that there are these moments when we reach critical mass in social change theory, and certain things can have long-term impacts. And I believe the recall of the judge for how he treated not only sexual assault victims in his courtroom, but domestic violence victims in his courtroom, is something that the public gets to weigh in on. And it's uh, the center. There's a there's a judicial watch center in California that's been monitoring judges. And Judge Aaron Persky was on that watch list. 
the California Council on Judicial Performance, which is almost completely toothless and does virtually nothing when judges commit misconduct, has not taken any action, and I doubt they will. So I do believe it's that kind of opportunity. I think the Brock Turner case is somewhat like the Bill Cosby case, and it has developed so much momentum that it has the potential to move the dial. And I hope 10 years from now there are less women being assaulted in this country because we used this as an opportunity to cause change to happen at all levels of society and hopefully in the judiciary, which is just one small part of all of the challenges that we've talked about and that we face. But it's a huge part. It's a huge part. Um, Consequences play a very important uh, – when I decide to speed in my car, I'm not going to do it if I just saw a police car. Consequences are important. And so whether we like it or not, we're all human beings. Those consequences, if we know that we're not likely to face any consequences, it's a little bit easier for us to behave in a way that – is not necessarily the way we would really ought to, we ought to be behaving. So I think Absolutely. we can't minimize those consequences and the impact of those consequences. Um, so you know, I, I I think that you know judicial response is something that's a huge issue in this country, and we tend to be looking at it on a piece by piece basis. Um, and I know that it's a, a sacred a sacred thing. You know, we want judges to be able to have authority and and be unimpacted by outside influences. I understand the idea behind that. However, we also can't allow judges to be sacrosanct and to um, make egregious decisions with impunity. Whoa, I dragged out some big words there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) (laughs) I've been reading my thesaurus. Um, Casey and Ebony, thank you so much for joining me on this show. I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's an important conversation, and I'm glad that we've had it. Ebony, any final words for our listeners that you would like to uh, impart? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that um, similar to what we sort of wrapped up the conversation on, which is, um, keep this conversation going. Um, make this a force of social change, and and let's try to get as much done for survivors as we can um, by using this time in the the spotlight and having the room to be able to talk about it. I would love to come back and do a story on survivors and how survivors cope. What's what? I think that this young woman, by coming out and writing this very compelling letter that we didn't even really go into, but it is available for for anyone to read, um, that has to be helpful for her in her process from now on, at least I would suspect. Do you agree with that? I do, yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 Casey, final words for us? I don't know the whole story of Brock Turner, but I do know that the vast majority of those who assault women and girls uh, come out of home environments with drugs and alcohol and child abuse and domestic violence, sometimes fueled by pornography, sometimes fueled by uh, racism or poverty. That's not the story with Brock Turner as far as I can tell, except perhaps the pornography piece of it. But I will tell you that I think that if we really want to prevent sexual assault in America, we've got to focus on the children, and we've got to focus on them before they become rapists. Uh, Working with a 19-year-old rapist or a 25-year-old rapist or a 35-year-old rapist is way late. Uh, You can love them when they're 7, 8, 9, 10, and you can save everybody the heartbreak and the pain that the victim is going through in this case, her family's going through, the Turner family's going through. Um, The focus has to be on getting in front of this and working at the top of the cliff instead of working at the bottom of the cliff. I think that's very, very true. And again, this case has gotten a lot of, of press. Let's use this and understand that this is just the little tip of the iceberg. We end our show with a quote every week. This week um, I am quoting a gentleman uh, named Kyle Suhan. I have no idea who he is except that he wrote a response to Dan Turner's letter. And Kyle says, I am a dad of three boys. I married a rape victim, and I have something to say to Brock Turner's father. Sex is always intentional. 
and my sons are going to understand that even consensual sex needs to be cared for with the utmost delicacy. Good for you, Kyle. Join us next week. We're going to have guest Ron Hayduck, who is going to be talking about the political rights in the age of migration left from the United States. Thank you so much for joining us on Three Women, Three Days. Casey, Three Ways, thank you, Casey. Thank you, Ebony, for your input into our program. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>